Mark 10, verse 13 to 31. When they, were set, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who... Wait. The people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Then he said, that, he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never get it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, know how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. Have we left everything to follow you? Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home, brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me, will, for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much as, the, as this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecution and in the persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Thanks James. And feel free to keep your Bibles open in Mark. We'll be jumping around a bit, but uh, we will be coming back to that passage. Well, uh, whether you like it or not, you've probably noticed that it's footy season once again. And <laughs> whenever this time rolls around, one of the questions that pops into my head is, how do coaches have so much to say to their players at three-quarter time? The game's been going on for so long, but you see them always making the most of every second that they get to keep on talking and talking to their players. It's kind of amazing that they have so much to say. Especially when the only sort of famous uh, footy coach speech in history was extremely simple. Former Hawthorne coach John Kennedy told his players in one grand final, three-quarter time, to just do something. That was it. Simple. Do something. And I think the reason why that speech has become so well known is because it actually speaks to all of us. 
we get a sense of, of his desire to, to win and his frustration that his players just aren't getting it done. So just, just do something. And really, in our lives, we see this happen all the time. The bigger the situation and the more dramatic the consequences if things go wrong, the more we'll want someone to just do something. When there's news of an unknown virus spreading around the world rapidly, we tell our governments, just do something about it. When there's a big flying cockroach that's disappeared into a dark corner of the house, we tell our family, just do something to get rid of it. Or we'll try and do something to flush it out. And on and on it goes. At heart, we just want to be able to do something to control our destiny to change our circumstances, to be the deciding force in our lives. And that's true of us eternally, as we saw with the rich man in our reading. This morning we're continuing our series on God's kingdom by turning to Mark's gospel. And although Jesus uses that language of the kingdom a lot less in Mark uh, compared to in Matthew or Luke. What he does say about it is very typical of Mark's gospel because Mark is an action-packed book. Uh, It's written in a way where you get the sense that you're being told an exciting story. It's written like, oh, this happened and then this happened and then that happened and because of that, we should do this. And Jesus' words about the kingdom reflect this tone. In our reading, for example, Jesus talks quite a bit about what we are to do, how we are to respond. Even the first recorded words by Jesus in Mark are a call to action and one that is centred on the kingdom. In chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Mark tells us that after John, the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And he told the people, the time has come, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. This statement is uh, really kind of a summary of what Jesus was preaching throughout his ministry. If you want to understand the core, the heart of Jesus' message, it's that the time has come, the kingdom of God has drawn near, repent and believe the good news. The time has come. This is talking about the prophecies, how ever since Adam and Eve, God had promised that one day a saviour would come. Someone would come who would rescue not just Israel, but all of humanity from sin, who would conquer death and Satan. And literally, he says here that the time is fulfilled, that the prophecies from long ago of a time to come when the Messiah, when the promised one, would arrive to rescue his people, those prophecies find their fulfillment in him. And then, the kingdom of God has drawn near. 
literally, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right there. It's in front of you. Because the king of the kingdom is there. You can hear him. You can see him. You can touch him. He's talking to you. He's inviting you into his kingdom. And he's telling you what his kingdom is like, as we thought about last week. And it sounds great. In this life, the kingdom of God is a community of love, of serving others, of rejoicing in God because of what he's done for us. But much more than that, entry into the kingdom comes with the guaranteed promise of eternal life. An eternal life with our Creator, in a renewed earth, with none of the ills of this life, of sickness, pain, sadness, death, but instead all of the joys of life magnified infinitely. So the question we're left with is, how do we get in? How do we enter the kingdom of God? As the rich man puts it, how do we inherit eternal life? In Mark chapter 4, Jesus refers to the mystery of the kingdom of God, uh, which is referring to the fact that the kingdom, including how to be part of it, is something that can only be understood through God's revelation. And we have God's revelation in the Bible. God is telling us, through Jesus, through His Word, what the kingdom looks like and how we become part of it. And in this summary statement in Mark 1, Jesus tells us that entering the kingdom comes through repentance and belief in the good news. The good news being that the Saviour has come. The King of the eternal, everlasting Kingdom of God has arrived to make good on His promise to rescue us from sin and death and bring us into His Kingdom for which He asks us simply to repent and believe. That is how we enter the Kingdom. And as we go through Mark's Gospel, Jesus draws out for us what this looks like when he talks about the kingdom. So we're going to look at the good news he gives us about repentance, belief and entering the kingdom. What does it mean to repent? Is it just admitting that you got something wrong? I don't know if you ever listen to sports talkback radio, I'm not trying to make this all about sports, it's just how things are. Um, I try to avoid Sports talk back as much as I can, but uh, occasionally you'll get a caller ring in and they'll ask one of the presenters, are you going to admit you were wrong? Uh, maybe the presenter had dismissed their team's chances of doing well this season and the caller feels you know, aggrieved and upset by that. Uh, whether he should be upset by it is a separate question, but his team's now doing really well, so he rings in and says, are you going to admit you got it wrong? And sometimes, what you'll get is that the presenter will respond by going, yeah, I got it wrong. And this odd thing happens where even though the caller got what he asked for, he still feels upset, as though he didn't really get what he wanted, what he was really looking for. And I think that's because the undercurrent of going, oh yeah, you know, I got it wrong, 
put my hand up, I got it wrong, is kind of, so what? Yeah, who cares? I got it wrong, and I'm going to keep getting it wrong again and again and again. It doesn't really matter. What the caller wanted wasn't actually just an admission of getting it wrong on this occasion. They wanted something more. They wanted repentance. And we're seeing this more and more in our world, in our culture. There's this desire for people, especially public figures, to not just admit that they got something wrong or that they did something wrong, but instead for them to show repentance. A few weeks ago, we looked at an example of what repentance looks like from the Bible, from the life of King David. After his uh, adultery with Bathsheba and his subsequent attempts to cover up the adultery are all revealed, David confesses that he has done wrong. But he doesn't just stop at that. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, you know, I got it wrong this time. Oh well, let's move on. Instead, we see in Psalm 51 that he is aggrieved by his wrongdoing. He recognises the weight of what he has done. And he wants to change his ways. He has a, a deep, deep sense of his innate sin, his natural inclination to rebel against God by deciding for himself what is right. And he doesn't want it to be that way. What he wants is a a clean heart, as he calls it. He wants to be faithful to God and to his commands. And so he asks God to forgive him and to change his desires to be in step with God. That's what repentance looks like. And if that's what repentance looks like, and Jesus asks us to repent, then like David, we must be sinning against him. We must be sinning against the Lord God. But our instinct, just like David's was initially, is to cover up our rebellion, to minimise it, to try and put it out of our minds, to not take it seriously. That's part of our sinful nature. Our rebellion demands that we decide what is right whenever we go against God. Uh, So we think it doesn't matter when we do rebel because, well, we get to decide what's right. But Jesus wants us to take sin seriously. Because only when we understand the weight of sin can we repent we can then turn to him and be in step with him, follow in his footsteps, so to speak. In Mark chapter 9, from verses 42 to 48, Jesus says the following, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed then with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled, 
than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's dramatic language. Uh, It's stark. It's pretty gory. Cut off your hand. Take out your eye. Get thrown into the sea. Or you'll be eaten by worms and surrounded by an unending fire. Does Jesus literally demand that we maim ourselves to enter the kingdom? No. The point is that sin eternally kills an unrepentant heart. And that everlasting death is a lot worse than temporarily losing a limb. Our bodies will be restored when Jesus returns to complete the kingdom in the new creation. But we can't be restored from judgment, from rejecting God. And if this imagery disgusts us, good, that's the point. Because sin is disgusting to God. It is foul, which is why in that same psalm, Psalm 51, God, uh, David says that God is justified when he judges us for our sin because it is evil. That is what Jesus wants us to understand so that we realize why we need to repent. Our sin means that we do not deserve the kingdom. And so we should repent. But what then? If we admit that we have done wrong, great wrong, in rebelling against God, and we repent of our misdeeds and recognize that we deserve death because of what we've done, is there any hope for us? If the king wants us in his kingdom, how do we get there? Jesus says, believe. We might put it like, we are to have faith in him, or we are to trust in him to bring us into his kingdom. At the start of our reading, uh, chapter 10, verses 13 to 17, Jesus says that we should receive the kingdom of God like a little child. That is, the kingdom of God is being given to us as a gift, like a parent giving their son or daughter a present? Is a little kid going to say no to being given a gift by their loving father or mother? I wouldn't have thought so. I think you'd expect that the child would greedily accept the present with open arms, uh, with joy, excited about what they're receiving. So why does the kingdom belong to those who accept it like children accept a gift? Because little children don't walk their own paths. They can't. They're not capable of it. They rely on their parents for everything. Their parents guide them along, care for them, give them what they need to live. And when it comes to the kingdom... We are the same with God. If we try to walk our own path, away from God with an unrepentant, rebellious heart, well, Jesus 
told us in that passage before what the end result would be, didn't he? It would be like a toddler trying to take care of themselves. It would be a disaster. We need God to provide the kingdom for us. And in Jesus, he has done that. In Jesus' death and resurrection, our sins have been paid for. And eternal life has been made real for us. God offers salvation to us, just as a parent offers a gift to their child. Our belief, trust, faith in Him, in the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection and the promise of eternal life, that is our acceptance of the kingdom, our acceptance of His gift to us. And perhaps you can see how repent and believe is a linked statement. Repentance and faith go together. In order to believe in the saving work of Jesus, we first need to understand that we need saving. And once we repent, we need a saviour. We need the saviour to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin. But when we hear this call to repent of our sins uh, and believe, trust in what God has done for us according to his promises, maybe we start itching. Maybe we feel a bit uncomfortable because it seems like our salvation, our entry into the kingdom, is not built on our actions. It sounds like God is the one doing the work to make us aware of our sinful state, to give us the gift of salvation. And all we have to do is to accept it with open arms. And if that makes us uncomfortable, because our eternal life isn't built on what we do to earn it, then we're not alone. That was certainly the feeling of the rich man that we encounter here in chapter 10. His question to Jesus is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And to us, on the face of it, that seems like a reasonable question. But as their discussion goes on, it's clear that there's a certain emphasis in that question that Jesus picks up on. The emphasis is, what must I do? He is thinking in terms of his actions. How can he achieve his salvation? When Jesus asks him about the law, he says, Yes, yes, I've kept all these commands since I was a boy. Uh, And being wealthy, which was seen there, especially at his young age, uh, that was seen as a blessing by God for his actions. So, he no doubt sincerely believed in his own goodness, in his own righteousness. But in truth, he cannot have kept the law perfectly as God requires, because no one can. We are sinful from conception, as David again says in Psalm 51. 
this man does not understand the gravity of sin, of his sin. And so he can't see the need for a saviour either. He's not able to grasp who Jesus is. When at the start of uh, the conversation he calls Jesus good teacher, that was a a no-no by Jewish standards because, as Jesus points out, only God is good. But Jesus isn't uh, rejecting the idea that he is the only good God when he says, why do you call me good? He's asking the man whether he realises who he's talking to. And if the man knew who who he was talking to, then when Jesus said, give away your possessions and follow me, he would have done as the disciples had done and followed. But instead, he becomes sad and walks away. He didn't realise who he was talking to. He didn't understand what was on offer. Perhaps he thought Jesus was just a teacher who had discovered the secret to eternity and and wanted to know it as well. We don't know. But we do know that Jesus offered to unveil the mystery of the kingdom to him. If only he would simply follow him so that he would learn to repent and believe. But he rejected it. Jesus laments how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Not because wealth is wrong. As we say when the offerings go around, our possessions are a a gift from God and that's true whether it's a lot or a little. But wealth from our work is one of those things that makes it easy to focus on ourselves. To look at what we've done, what we've achieved. Always looking back to ourselves to build the best possible life. And while the rich man recognises that the best possible life is eternal life with God, he can't accept that he cannot do anything to earn it. He can't let go of his pride. He can't let go of his work. He can't let go of himself being the one who defines his own path. He's kept the commands, he understands God's law, isn't isn't that enough? Surely he has what it takes to do whatever's necessary to earn eternity. And so, he walks away. He walks away from the one who would give him eternal life. Jesus says, follow me. The king is offering to personally lead him into the kingdom. And the man says, no, I want to do it my way. But then a little later on, we meet someone who does get it. In one of the last mentions of the kingdom in Mark, in chapter 12, from verse 28, we read that one of the teachers of the law came and heard them, Jesus and the Pharisees, debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, 
the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Do you see the difference? Unlike the rich man who looks to his own work to earn him eternal life, this teacher recognises that burnt offerings and sacrifices, that is, the things that we do, are insufficient. Nothing we can ever do can earn our salvation. So instead, to love God wholeheartedly, that is the greatest thing we can do. That is what we are called to do. And that is what Jesus is calling us to do when he says, repent and believe. To repent of sin is to express love for God by acknowledging Him as God, recognising how we have wronged Him and how we now want to follow His good commands. And to believe, to trust in Him is to express love for God by recognising His fatherly love for us which He shows us in Jesus who died and rose again so that we will be able to spend eternity with him in his kingdom. And even more than that, when we repent and believe in Jesus, we become part of the kingdom here on earth. We join with other members of the kingdom and we share with each other what God has done for each of us, growing our love for him, and we're given the opportunity to love others as well to show our neighbours, whether at church or at work or indeed our neighbours that live next to us at home, to show everyone the love that God has given to us. Seemingly, paradoxically, because we don't have to do anything to earn our salvation, because all we're called to do is to repent and believe the good news about Jesus... When we do place our trust in Him, God works in us so that we end up wanting to keep His commands. All those things that the rich man was concerned with doing for himself, all those commands he was concerned with keeping, we instead grow to just want to do out of love for the God who has saved us so that others can come to know Him as well. And when we fail to live up to that, because as sinners we all continue to fall short, sometimes very badly, like David, but when we fail, we know we can come to God, repenting, and continuing to believe in the salvation that Jesus has given to us. The kingdom that he has led us into, 
by his death and resurrection. And that is good news. That is great news. That is the best news that we can ever receive. So repent, believe it, and be part of the kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the offer of your kingdom. Thank you for offering your son to pay our penalty for our sin in his death on the cross. And thank you for his resurrection that brings us eternal life. Lord, help us to always remember that you are the one who does the work of salvation. You are the one who calls us to repentance. So help us, Lord, to repent of the ways that we have wronged you. You are the one, Lord, who offers us eternal life. So help us, Lord, to accept your offer and to continue believing in you. And Lord, help us to share this good news so that more may enter the kingdom and you may receive the glory of our salvation. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.